Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to this fifth uh, presentation in the Joseph K. McLaughlin Lecture Series. Uh, this series recognizes Joe's support for the Cato Institute, his scientific accomplishments, and the range of his intellectual interests. The diverse speakers in the series um, reflect interests in science, technology, economics, and more. Um, I probably should have said, for those of you who don't know, that I'm David Bowes. I'm the executive vice president of the Institute. Um, I want to thank Joe's wife, Jean Rosenthal, and his daughter, Allison, uh, for being here and for supporting this series of lectures. And what better place for a discussion of a broad range of important topics than the Hayek Auditorium, named for a scholar who wrote books on economics, political theory, law, psychology, and the methodology of the social sciences. And of course, Hayek wrote a great deal about socialism and the question of why the worst get on top, a topic that uh, our speaker tonight is a leading expert on. Hayek wrote in The Road to Serfdom, if all the means of production were vested in a single hand, whether it be nominally that of society as a whole or that of a dictator, whoever exercises this control has complete power over us. And the experience with communism certainly demonstrated that. Our speaker tonight, Frank DeCotter, is Chair Professor of Humanities at the University of Hong Kong. He has pioneered the use of archival sources and published a dozen books that have changed the way historians uh, understand China, notably his trilogy of Mao's Great Famine, The Tragedy of Liberation, and The Cultural Revolution of People's History. He won the um, Samuel Johnson Prize, an annual British award for the best nonfiction book, and was shortlisted for the Orwell Prize. The Tragedy of Liberation was called a significant event in our understanding of modern China by the New York Times Book Review. And two other great historians of communism, Timothy Snyder and Anne Applebaum, have noted that totalitarian states try to suppress and control the past and have praised Decatur's tremendous service in bringing out the truth. Other reviewers have called his books grim, mesmerizing, astonishing, and authoritative. And now he has taken what he learned in his years of research and offered a timely portrait of dictatorship, a guide to the cult of personality, and a map for exposing the lies dictators tell to build and maintain their regimes. This is history that is as timely as the day's newspapers. At Cato, we defend liberalism against illiberal systems from across the political spectrum. In the 1930s, liberalism faltered as communists battled fascists for supremacy. Today, as we see a resurgence of authoritarian factions and leaders on both right and left, it is our job to ensure that libertarianism is more, that liberalism, more broadly speaking, is more resilient than previously. Please welcome our latest Joseph K. McLaughlin lecturer, an incisive analyst of totalitarianism, Frank DeCotter. Thank you very much for a very uh, generous introduction. Um, I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Um, the Cato combined with Hayek 
great combination. I'm a little um, apprehensive how to be a dictator. What if there is a budding dictator sitting in the audience? <laughs> will I be held responsible for that? Uh, I, I hope not. In any event, if, if there is one, it, it's uh, invariably a he, actually. Uh, let me tell him um, that it's not really a great career move. Um, the main reason is that there's not much of a retirement plan. You have to ruthlessly uh, suppress. And of course, you, you must start with your friends rather than your foes, since your friends are the only ones who can really betray you. Um, so you become paranoid and will end up having to live a very lowly existence. There's no such thing as going back to your stamp collection, you know, handing in your notice and go fishing in the countryside. Now, in any event, in, in any event even if there is a budding dictator, um, I'm afraid that there simply isn't a simple rule book. There, there aren't 12 steps to be taken in order to become a great dictator. It's not a ladybird book. Um, it's not like uh, providing first aid to somebody. It's actually extraordinarily complicated. And what comes out of it, I think, is that dictators are unique individuals who operate in unique circumstances. I've picked eight to really illustrate that huge diversity. I start with Benito Mussolini. I move on, I think, quite predictably to cover Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Kim Il-sung, and I add three minor ones, Papa Doc, Duvalier, and Haiti. Oh, wonderful man. <laughs> Ruthless, probably more so than the others. Um, Ceausescu, because he's barking mad, and probably the only one who truly ends up believing in his own cult of personality, was taken aback when he gives a speech in December 1989, uh, when the audience, instead of cheering him, starts booing him. And you can see his voice falter. And of course, a day later, he and his wife are lined up against uh, a toilet block and shot. The last one is Mengistu. Fear not, many people ask me this question, who is Mengistu? <laughs> He's probably the most ruthless African dictator. Uh, Ethiopia, probably two million people who died unnecessarily under his reign. So from Germany in the 1920s, 30s, all the way to an incredibly impoverished part of the world, like Haiti or Ethiopia, a very broad sort of overview that illustrates how extraordinarily different they all, they all are. Of course, there are common features. You must be ruthless. And it also helps if you have no empathy for other human beings, since as a dictator, you will make all major decisions uh, at the cost of occasionally millions of lives. So if that keeps you up at night, again, not a good career move. Um, now, what comes out of my study, well, how to be a dictator, but also the subtitle, um, the cult of personality. I think overall, you can really say that there are two main instruments that dictators use. One is 
terror, fear. And the other one is image, or the glorification of the dictator, what I refer to as the cult of personality. They go hand in hand. In fact, that is probably um, one of the most um, interesting parts of the book that it traces very carefully, chronologically, like any historian would, how image and terror move hand in hand. Um, the terror, of course, is well known. The, the concentration camps, the secret police, the torture, the awful crimes against humanity. But less has been said, I think, about the cult of personality, which has been described occasionally as a sort of aberrant side phenomenon. But we forget that throughout the 20th century, literally hundreds of millions of people cheered their own dictators, even as they were herded down the road to serve them. This, by the way, is your reference to Hayek. <laughs> Across large parts of the planet, roughly half of the planet in the 20th century, uh, the face of the dictator appeared on hoardings and buildings in every school, every office, every factory. People had to bow to his likeness, pass by his statue, invoke his name, recite his work, extol his genius. So it is more than just a sight phenomenon. I think at the heart of it uh, is a paradox. The paradox of the dictator is that he must create the illusion of popular support. The 20th century, after all, is an age of democracy. People are supposed to be sovereign and select their own leader. But dictators decided to take a shortcut, seize power, either by organizing a coup or by rigging the system. And they found out that when you seize power through violence, you must maintain power through more violence. And violence can be a very blunt instrument. Of course, it's necessary for any dictator to have spies, interrogators, torturers, the secret police. But if a dictator can compel his own people to acclaim him in public, he will last a lot longer. Now, a dictator must instill fear into his own people, but also fear into his immediate entourage. And he's fearful of the people around him. The reason for this is quite straightforward. Dictators, by nature, are weak. Had they been strong, they would have been elected by a majority. But they opted to seize power, often over the bodies of their opponents. And by seizing power, they raised the prospect of a stab in the back. There were rivals, just as ruthless, waiting in the wings and ready to seize power from him. Of course, any dictator 
can have recourse to a whole range of strategies to control the people around him. There are bloody purges. There is manipulation. There is divide and rule. But ultimately, again, the cult of personality helps a great deal. If a dictator can compel his allies, but also his rivals, to acclaim him in front of all the others, ultimately, he turns them into liars. And when everybody lies, it's very difficult to find out who thinks what. And if you don't know who thinks what, you can't really organize resistance. You can't set up a coup. You can't find allies. Now, this is why I think the cult of personality is so central rather than a side phenomenon. Now, who built up the cult? Of course, there were playwrights, choreographers, poets, powerful ministries of propaganda, sometimes entire branches of industry devoted to the production of cult objects. But ultimately, the responsibility was always with the dictator. It varied from one case to the other. But in the case of Benito Mussolini, uh, by one account, he spent half of his time cultivating his own image, projecting himself as the omniscient, omnipotent, indispensable ruler of Italy, besides running about half a dozen ministries himself. He's a busy man. He calculated every gesture carefully. He acquired Villa Torlonia, a vast sprawling estate in 1925, and would sit in the projection room carefully studying his every gesture during his public performances. That chin jutted out, head tilted back, the rolling eyes, I won't even try to imitate him. All of these were calculated to project power, and determination. He showed himself to millions in Italy during whirlwind tours of the countryside, impromptu visits to villages, mass meetings with workers, endless inaugurations of public projects. His word was everywhere. His face stared at people from fences, hoardings, buildings, portraits across the country, as Italo Balbo, one uh, of the fascist leaders, put it, Italy is a newspaper in which Mussolini writes the first page every day. The same can be said about Adolf Hitler. He was tireless at building up his own party as an orator, actor, choreographer, all wrapped in one. And he paid attention to his own image. Like Mussolini, he was short-sighted, made sure never to appear with his glasses in public, hired a photographer called Heinrich Hoffmann to produce images 
that projected sheer willpower and determination. After 1933, he realized that radio was a great tool as his voice became inescapable with loudspeaker pillars erected in cities, mobile loudspeakers taken to smaller towns. Joseph Goebbels, of course, assisted him as the minister of propaganda, but he failed to fully exploit all the resources offered by cinema. So Adolf Hitler instead turned towards Leni Riefenstahl, who made him the star of a whole series of movies seen, shown in every theater across Germany. When it comes to Mao, of course, uh, we have in mind the Cultural Revolution with entire sectors of the industry producing nothing but cult objects. The Cultural Revolution, in a nutshell, was the elimination of anything that smacked of the past and its replacement by true proletarian culture. And true proletarian culture meant the cult of Mao. Factories uh, that produced red ink for the little red book ran dry after 1966. Some 40 million Mao badges were produced every single month, and yet it was not enough to feed demand with the consequence that a thriving black market appeared, which seems somehow like a contradiction, uh, a black market encapsulated by Mao's portrait. I would have thought that would be a symbol of capitalist ingenuity, but never mind. The point is that in 1969, Mao decided that so much aluminium went into the production of badges that it had to stop. Give me back my aeroplanes, is the one sentence he uttered. And overnight, the badges more or less vanished. Mao used the Cultural Revolution to pit people against other people. In the end, entire factions were battling each other in the streets as the country was on the verge of civil war. All of these factions convinced that they represented the true voice of Mao Zedong. It looked like chaos, but Chairman Mao was always in control, feeding an endless cycle of violence as people were desperate to prove their loyalty to him and him alone. Yet, by the end of his life, Mao at long last felt secure enough in his existence and the whole cult of personality somehow vanished. Around about 1971, as the army is purged, Mao towers above all others at the cost, of course, of millions of broken lives. He feels that he is, at long last, secure in his own life. Uh, Hitler. Mussolini, Mao, in all these cases, we've been told that millions of people believed in this cult. 
Millions believed that Mao was a great genius. We are told, for instance, that people everywhere in China grieved in 1976 as he passed away. But of course, in traditional China, weeping loudly, sometimes throwing oneself on the ground in front of the coffin of an important family member was a required demonstration of filial piety. In the past, sometimes actors were hired to wail loudly on the occasion of a funeral of an important dignitary, encouraging other people to, to join without feeling too inhibited. And I think this is precisely what happened when Mao died. When people went back home, many of them opened a bottle of liquor or wine. Wine shops ran dry in a whole number of series, a whole series of cities. There are children who didn't quite understand what was happening. There are parents crying in public when the chairman dies, and in the evening, opening a bottle of wine and having a good time. It seemed like a contradiction. Of course, people knew how to cry on command. Same thing with Kim Il-sung, 1994. The man dies. There's almost a competition in expressions of grief, as some people pound their heads, strip off their clothes, wave a fist at the sky in feigned rage. But nobody knows who was sincere and who was not. So I'm not trying to suggest that nobody believed that their own leader was some great person. What I'm trying to point out is that the cult of personality wasn't there to persuade people or convince them. It was there to destroy common sense. It was there to enforce obedience, to isolate individuals and crush their dignity by compelling them, all of them, to acclaim a person they might have secretly detested. So underneath that great uniformity, there would have been a great diversity of reactions towards dictators. And that's something one ought to bear in mind. Now, of course, people were great actors who could cry and command because they were asked to perform in front of the dictator and create that illusion of popular consent. In other words, they were very much condemned to perpetual enthusiasm. Why was this so important? Well, because it was vital that a dictator appear to be the recipient of all this adulation rather than the creator. In some cases, because this cult of personality had to appear spontaneous 
welling from the hearts of ordinary people. It appeared to outside observers to be tinted with religious overtones. In some cases, one might even be tempted to talk about a form of secular worship. But this, too, was deliberately cultivated by the dictators themselves. In the case of Mussolini, he went out of his way uh, to promote feelings of devotion which were characteristic of Christian piety. There were holy images, holy places, pilgrimages, even the hope of a holy touch by the man himself in Rome. The case of Adolf Hitler, of course, he posed as a, as a messiah, somehow linked to his people by the hand of providence. In the case of Marxist-Leninist regimes, it was slightly more complicated. But even there, the communists understood full well that the fundamentals of dialectical materialism didn't really appeal to a largely illiterate population in Russia, in China, in Korea, in Ethiopia. Almost instinctively, after 1917, and in particular after the death of Lenin, uh, under the Red Star, a new religion appears even as the Orthodox Church is crushed. Altars appear that celebrate Lenin as a holy figure, Stalin and his friends of course, in 1924, embalm his body and display him on Red Square, where people see him as a sort of saint. In the case of Haiti, Papa Doc Duvalier goes out of his way to encourage rumors about his otherworldly powers after he comes to power in 1957. He poses as somebody who is in close touch with the voodoo spirits, appears occasionally in public with a top hat, a tailcoat, wearing dark glasses, cultivating a resemblance to Baron Samedi, the spirit of the dead, guardian of cemeteries. In public, he uses a deep nasal voice as if he is somehow chanting incantations against his enemies. Same thing in Ethiopia. Mengistu is supposed to be a Marxist-Leninist dictator. Yet, he too replicates uh, the imperial tradition. He occupies the Grand Palace where Haile Selassie had lived uh, and leads a life uh, that is marked by imperial rituals with liveried footmen, chained cheetahs, lion statues. 
Mengistu has the emperor throttled and buries him right underneath his office, places his desk above the corpse as if somehow to absorb the charisma of the emperor. So these are the religious uh, overtones. Something that becomes very clear is that ultimately, for all these dictators, what mattered most was loyalty to their own person rather than loyalty to a creed. From the moment I went to university some 40 years ago, I was told that ideology is all important when it comes to understanding these Marxist-Leninist regimes. But very few dictators really cared all that much. This is particularly true, of course, with the ones on the right, so to speak. Mussolini was openly contentful of ideology and refused to be hemmed in by any fixed set of ideas. He trusted his own intuition. Adolf Hitler, of course, of course made his own star the guiding principle uh, of the Nazi party. It would be his vision, his star, his luck, providence that would guide the nation, not some rigid ideology. In the case of Marxism-Leninism, uh, it's also interesting to observe that, in fact, few people ever read Marx. It would have been rather foolish to do so. On the Stalin, one was a Stalinist. On the Mao, one was a Maoist. On the Kim Il-sung, one was a Kim Il-sungist. In Ethiopia, Mengistu, of course, embraces all the paraphernalia of socialism, accepts the statue of Lenin, sent by the Soviet Union, and the statue of Marx, sent by East Germany. The trinity goes up, Marx, Engels, Lenin. But ultimately, Mengistu is interested not so much in Marx, the one who had provided a vision of utopian equality. He's interested in Lenin and his notion of a vanguard party that seizes power and directs the transition from capitalism to communism from above ruthlessly eliminating all enemies. What I'm trying to say is that ultimately, Mengistu merely used Marxism in order to find ways of accruing his own power. It's slightly more complicated in the case of Stalin, Mao, and Kim Il-sung, but ultimately, it's the same story. Marx wanted a world revolution as the proletariat would stand up and overthrow the bourgeoisie. But Stalin proposed to have a revolution in one country alone. Mao went even further. Marx clearly indicated that the proletariat would be the vanguard of the revolution. Mao instead opted for villages, turning Marxism very much on its head. And for good reason, of course, only 0.5% of the population in China in the 1920s and 30s were factory workers. Kim Il-sung goes even further. By 1968, foreign books are suspect 
in North Korea, including those written by Marx and Engels. By 1972, is Marxism written out of the Constitution, replaced by Kim Il-sung-ism. So ultimately, again, it is loyalty to one person that matters. So one of the keys of dictatorship is that one must become the author of a body of work that others must commit to memory. With Duvalier, there is Duvalierism. With Ceausescu, there is Ceausescuism. Ultimately, dictators lied to their people. They lied to their entourage. But they also lied to themselves. They teetered between hubris and paranoia. They were surrounded by sycophants and as a result made all major decisions themselves with devastating consequences for tens of millions of people. But they were also paranoid of enemies at home and abroad. They wanted more power to consolidate the power they already had. A few veered off into a world of their own, unmoored from all reality. Hitler is one very good example. But since so much hinged on the decision of one single dictator, even a small misstep could cause the regime to falter, as we saw in the case, for instance, of Ceausescu. So ultimately, if the people were a threat to dictators, and the people in their immediate entourage were a threat, another very important threat to the dictator was the dictator himself. Thank you. We have some time for questions. Raise your hand. Frank will call on you. Wait for a microphone to get to you. How would you, how would you identify? Wait. Oh, thank you. Sure, thank you. How would you identify someone in this country who was en route to dictatorship? How would I identify somebody in this country? Oh, well, who doesn't? <laughs> who doesn't? Doesn't what? My head of department would love to be a dictator. Sometimes I think my wife would love to be a dictator. <laughs> Maybe I would love to be a dictator. Um, and of course, equally, we denounce anyone we don't like as a dictator. My wife is a dictator. My head of department is a dictator. Everybody is a dictator. Um, there's a difference between uh, willing, rooting to do something and actually doing something. When it comes to this country, what I see is democracy in action. I think it'd be very dangerous to start comparing uh, what might occasionally be seen as the buffoonery of one man uh, to the horrendous crimes against humanity committed by true dictators throughout the 20th century. If you don't like the man in charge, 
but you are compelled to acclaim him in front of your own family and your colleagues, that is what a cult of personality is. A cult of personality is when nobody knows who thinks what. And when I open a newspaper in this country or uh, I look at TV, it's pretty clear who thinks what. <laughs> Maybe it's the exact opposite. Maybe the man in charge uh, gets nothing <laughs> but criticism. So if the man in charge would want to become a dictator, so far he's failed abysmally. <laughs> I don't know, over here and then over there and then over there. I'm half blind with all these lights. From my understanding, the concept of a dictatorship was always supposed to be temporary, perhaps most nobly with the ancient Romans. How did this get so blown out of proportion over the course of time? How does dictatorship get blown out of proportion? Yes. Well, it, I think Machiavelli pointed this out very clearly. Uh, if you're determined to hang on to power, you must have more in order to protect the power you already have. There's no such thing as stepping down. Uh, if you seize power, if you eliminate not only your foes but also your friends, there's no exit there. There's nothing you can do about it. There's no such thing as Mussolini trampling over the bodies of his friends and foes alike, uh, eliminating civil society, curtailing freedom of speech, turning his country into some sort of uh, military garrison, and then somehow saying, oh, well, it was only uh, an intermediate phase. So let us now embrace democracy. It doesn't happen. You could make a case uh, I think only one case, in my mind, could be made uh, for Salazar and Portugal. You might say that maybe Salazar was a sort of intermediate figure between empire and democracy. Uh, but even there, uh, I, I somehow have my doubts. It took a carnation revolution to get rid of him. Over here. Nicolás Maduro, there is no personality there. There is no there there. Uh, but he is a dictator, and he controls the country through, the, through having allowed all kinds of criminal bands to take over uh, and possess the country. Chávez had personality. Maduro has none. How do you overthrow a dictator with no personality? <laughs> It's a, very good, it's a very good question. Uh, Robert Servitz, a, a very distinguished historian of the Soviet Union and um, a fellow, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, uh, where we both spent time over the summer, uh, wrote a chapter in his biography on Stalin called The Cult of Impersonality, in that Stalin always appeared to be utterly devoid of, of any characteristics. And by the 1940s, no one had any idea about his family or his past or anything to do with the real Stalin, quote, unquote. Um, but that, too, was, deliberate, was a deliberate impression created by Stalin. Stalin was a compulsive editor. He pruned his cult of personality. 
He would pore over articles. He would review uh, editorials and speeches to make sure that he was praised in the exact way that he liked it. Um, so what I'm trying to say is that it suited him to appear uh, on Red Square twice a year as a sort of monument, a man who barely moved with his big coat, with his peak cap, uh, occasionally smiling and probably waving, but a very distant person who towered far above all the others. So in this particular case, um, the cult of personality uh, doesn't mean that you need to have a strong personality or use strong features to become part of your cult of personality. What you want ultimately is use fear to have people acclaim you. And that's all that's required. Thank you. I was just a uh, question with North Korea, because it seems like there's something different, that they institutionalized it across generations of the family. And so wondering in your research, was there something that made them different, or how Kim Il-sung instituted his cult of personality to survive his death? Yes. Uh, again, there are no rules, because for, for every example is a counterexample. It just so happens that Kim Il-sung was lucky enough to have a family member he thought would be able and willing to carry on the family tradition, so to speak. Of course, Duvalier did the same thing, Papa Doc and then, uh, you know, Baby Doc. Uh, so that prolonged the regime for about a decade or so. But ultimately, not every dictator is all that lucky. Um, Mao did somehow look around his family to see if there might be a nephew called Mao Driyuan who, who might potentially take over. What you're concerned about is your legacy. Uh, and it may be wiser in some cases to pick uh, somebody who's not a family member. Uh, Mao picked a short, uh, hard man called Deng Xiaoping. And he made the right choice because his portrait is still up there on Tiananmen Square on every, every bill. Mao's greatest fear was to undergo the same fate that Stalin had undergone when Khrushchev denounced him in 1956 and started de-Stalinization. The whole Cultural Revolution was about fear that there might be de possibly even before he died. They picked the right man. So again, it's the skill of the dictator to pick the right person. Uh, in the case of the Ceausescu's, by uh, one account, there were some 50 family members in positions of power uh, by 1989, but they didn't last. So it's skill, again, and exceptionally skillful in the case, of course, of North Korea with three generations. Quite unique indeed. Question here? I'd like to understand the, the legacy issue. We recognize Hitler as a mass murderer, Pol Pot as a mass murderer, uh, Stalin as a mass murderer. But uh, the national hero of Mongolia is Chinggis Khan. On their currency, one of the greatest mass murderers in history. And the greatest mass murderer in history, Mao, is on every single currency in China to this day. Yes. What is with that incredible double standard? 
Well, of course, you don't have to be a dictator to be a mass murderer, and not every mass murderer is a dictator. I mean, Geng Genghis Khan obviously comes from a very different political system. And you can only be a dictator um, in an age of democracy, in that the power that is supposed to be vested in the people is seized by someone. Otherwise, we're talking about an imperial system or a, an, abs an absolute monarchy. So Henry VIII is not a dictator, although by all accounts, he was probably quite awful. Now, I'll, you don't have to be a dictator to be, you don't have to, not every dictator is a mass murderer either. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, Duvalier was absolutely ruthless uh, with his own entourage. But ultimately, the vast number of people from Haiti who didn't like it uh, voted with their feet and managed to, to leave. Um, it's the same with North Korea under Kim Il-sung. Of course, there were camps. Of course, uh, th there was a sprawling gulag to the north uh, of Korea up in the mountains. But a great many Koreans managed to move to the south during the Korean War. So you don't have the same percentage of people killed, which is so much more enormous under Stalin, under Hitler, and of course under Mao. Why the double standards? And that's a very difficult question indeed to answer. Why is it that some people somehow uh, managed to capture the public imagination and are equated with evil, whereas others seem to get a, a sort of pass? In the case of Mao, um, I think the reason is reasonably straightforward. Um, it's the fact that when we talk about China, we don't look at politics. We always think in terms of culture. So the culture is different. The people there are just different. It is as if somebody were to say of Stalin that, in fact, uh, it's Russian culture that's different. You know, Stalin somehow embodies the values of the Orthodox Church, something like that, or it goes back for many centuries. There's the tendency, the moment Europeans, Americans move beyond Europe and the United States, to start seeing things in terms of culture uh, and hence relativize the crimes against com humanity committed by some of those uh, murderers. There was a question over there, I think. You'll forgive me if I don't always see who raises their hand. I'm half blind. <laughs> I could see one hand over there. Monarchs throughout history have developed cults of personality also, um, even uh, to the extent of being literally worshipped. How do you distinguish between dictators in the 20th century and the monarchs throughout history who have themselves developed cults of personality, except that the dictators in the 20th century lived in eras when other countries were democracies? Yes. Well, a, a monarch uh, cares about the people at court. So when it comes to Louis XIV, I actually start the book with Louis XIV. Uh, he was a master at projecting his image throughout the realm with statues and paintings and court poets and historians to acclaim as many deeds in war and peace alike. Uh, but nonetheless, what worried him was the aristocracy. And he built Versailles to make sure that aristocracy were, were right there and had to compete among themselves for favors at court. At court. But Louis XIV or, or any other monarch couldn't care less about ordinary people because they didn't matter. 
Of course, you wish to avoid a rebellion, but you do not need to create the illusion of popular consent. And that's, again, the paradox of the dictator, is that he must at least create the illusion that he is the one who represents the majority, even if he doesn't. I think over there, there was a question. Uh, you mentioned dictators' use of the cult of personality for, as a means for them to project their appearance of popularity. Uh, so my question is about North Korea. Uh, do you think Kim Jong-un's appearance on the world stage with Donald Trump and other world leaders sort of uh, bolsters his appearance of, like, of popularity within his own nation? All of that plays a major role at what happens at home. There's a point um, under Kim Il-sung where you cannot open a newspaper in North Korea without seeing Kim Il-sung either uh, welcoming a foreign visitor uh, or traveling abroad. It is as if the world revolves around Kim Il-sung. And of course, it's the same for, for every dictator, even Duvalier in that tiny half of an island with a few million people manages to create the impression that it is he who somehow controls Rome and the church. And it is he who somehow controls the United States of America, which of course he does to some extent, <laughs> in that it would have taken uh, about a, a, a small group of about 50 mercenaries uh, to land in Haiti and organize a palace coup, well, 50 well-trained, well-armed men, but it never happened because of the disaster uh, in Cuba with, with the, uh, you know, the, the failed attempt there. And most of all, because Duvalier is a master at using the threat of communism to obtain the support of the United States. So all of them are extremely good at projecting themselves as the very center around which the world uh, revolves. It's remarkable. Yeah. Um, did you see any evidence that they were learning from each other, that they were studying what was and what wasn't working elsewhere, or were they coming to these rules by themselves? Absolutely. Uh, what are dictators? Ultimately, they are students of power. How do they study it? They read the biographies of other dictators, all great men from the past. Mussolini, as you can imagine, was obsessed with, with some of the Roman emperors, Augustus in particular, uh, but also with Napoleon. Uh, so they read about others and they observe others, whether it is Mussolini or Hitler or Mao, all of them find a source of inspiration in Lenin. And the whole idea that a vanguard revolutionary party can somehow just seize power and impose revolution from above. So that's the one thing dictators have in common. They are students of power and they study each other. And that's precisely what I've done with this book. I've studied the dictators <laughs> very precisely. And no true dictator would be foolish enough to think that there are about 12 rules to be followed. They, they know that it's the way you react to certain changes of fortune or different circumstances that's the mark of a successful dictator, which is why, ultimately, 
Um, there are no rules. It's what I said earlier on. There are rule breakers. If you have to discard Marxist ideology and decide that the true vanguard of the revolution are the villagers, so despised by Marx, and that's what you do. I'm sorry, I haven't had a chance to read the book yet. Of course, it's going to be published in about a month, so Indeed. I have not had a chance to read it. But I did read the publisher's copy, and in that, there are, there, there's a reference to how these lessons might apply to some contemporary leaders like Erdogan, and I'm not sure, maybe Putin was one. Uh, so I just wonder, those people do not seem to be dictators in the way you've described it. They came to power, in most cases, through elections. Yes. Um, they may have cults of personality, but they're not all powerful. What, do you draw lessons in the book about some modern leaders? Yes, I, I think ultimately uh, one must recognize that there are true dictators out there. North Korea is one example. The People's Republic of China is another example. These are classic dictators. Uh, you know, concentration of power, elimination of all organizations outside of the organization of the party, uh, a cult personality. Um, it, it, it's in fact relatively easy. Get on a plane, travel to the country you're interested in, see if you can find somebody who will openly declare that the man in charge is a complete failure. I think you will fail to find anyone in Beijing uh, or in North Korea. But when it comes to other parts of the country, uh, of the world, I think then that one must draw um, one lesson from history, and, and that's perspective. You can either wait till you're very, very old and acquire perspective, or you can read history. Things go a little bit faster. And when you look at it historically, um, the world is not in the same place it was 30 years ago, or 60 years ago, or 90 years ago. I mean, 30 years ago uh, was before the fall of the Soviet Union. It was a very different world uh, in large parts of Europe, Africa, and elsewhere. Uh, we have to acknowledge that. Um, of course, there are retreats in democracy. Of course, there's no such thing as a sort of, you know, march forwards. Uh, we should be eternally vigilant. That's the very price of democracy. But to start comparing um, some democratic figures uh, to the dictators we had in the 20th century, I think is far-fetched. Uh, in the case of Assad in Syria, I think it's a reasonably clear-cut case. In the case of Erdogan, it's more open to debate. And this is true for Putin as well, just in case you wonder about him. He's been around for what, a decade or so? And only a few weeks ago was slander against Putin made illegal. I ask you what kind of dictator is that? <laughs> that should have happened right away. <laughs> Yet, it's all about Putin so much as if nothing is happening in Beijing. You talked of, let's make this the last question. You talked of the role of ideology and you argued that it was pretty minor yep. in, in there triumphs. Uh, what about anti-Semitism and Hitler? What about? Yes, yes, of course. Hitler. Well, as I said, his person is at the very center 
of the Nazi movement. It's about him. It's about apostles who can see how important he is. In September 1936, as he is adored by a crowd of followers, he tells them that, that you have found me is the miracle of our modern time. And, and, and that I am here to help Germany is our good fortune. So, of course, you can say there is nationalism and anti-Semitism, but that was widespread in Europe, one might say to this day. <laughs> so... It was always about Hitlerism rather than about anything else, I think. It's always about his, his own person. Which is not to say that none of these dictators didn't have certain pet projects. I mean, quite clearly, anti-Semitism was quite deeply rooted uh, in the Nazi party and, and probably many, many other parts of Europe as well. It's not to say that Mengistu wasn't really convinced that the only way to bring Eritrea to, to heal is through, through war. It's not to say that Mussolini didn't have an almost superstitious belief in economic autarky and independence. These are all pet projects, but it's not quite the same as ideology, a body of work that must be uh, learned and passed on. They're all ultimately very pragmatic. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.